Maybe you've heard this conversation before as two little boys trudging the snow on their way to go ice skating. I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending cards, decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. To which Linus responds to his friend Charlie. Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. <laughs> to which I would ask you this question. How's your Christmas spirit doing this year? Are you wondering why it's kind of idling instead of revving? Uh, maybe you're feeling a little Charlie Brownie this Advent. Feeling like you're missing something, but you're not exactly sure what. You know, we haven't talked much about this, but as we've been going through the book of Ruth, we're not exactly sure when or why Ruth was written, but it seems like it might have been written in the time when the kingdom of Israel had split. In fact, it was King David's grandson, Rehoboam, who made some dumb choices, and Israel split from Judah and Benjamin. And so the author of Ruth may have been looking back at King David's origin story to say there was a time during the time of the judges when we needed a king and God providentially worked in a small town with a small family in circumstances that you wouldn't assume and brought about the unity of the kingdom under God's kingship, that king being King David. As that author was writing, those would have been gray times of waiting. Times wondering, what has happened to the kingdom that God promised us? What has happened to the line of David, the covenant that he made with David? Why are things the way that they are? Life waiting can be gray. For us, Christ has already come to unite his people in himself. And we begin to celebrate that through Christmas, through the Incarnation. Yet, we are still waiting in the gray days of not yet. He has already come, but he has not yet returned. And we long for our King to return and unite all things in himself. The consummation of his kingdom. Praying with the saints of old. How long, O Lord? How long? You may have seen Zoe's sermon slide this morning. Do we have it? There we go. It's a little grayer than the first two have been. Part of that is the reason that there's a significant scene that's going to happen at midnight. But when Zoe showed it to me, I thought this captures a bit of the grayness of our waiting. When we're just kind of not sure exactly what's next, but we are calling out, Oh Lord, how long? So even during a season like Advent, a season of color and song, this morning if you're here and you're like, but I just can't seem to rev up my Christmas spirit. I, I don't know why it's feeling this way. 
Well, before I pray, let me just pastorally say this. I know a lot of you are grieving significant loss, even within this last year. And that still weighs heavily on you. Some of those are deaths, some are relationships, some are things that maybe I don't even know about, but God does. That can be grayness. That can be wondering, why do I not feel like I normally do this time of year? Well, let me give you a glimmer of sure hope, even as I pray. Listen, we are people who are made for eternity. So 40 days of waiting for that Christmas ideal can cause us to long for eternity in a way that that Christmas ideal can't meet. And even the things that you're grieving aren't ultimately things that can meet that need for eternity for which you and I have been made. We are longing for our king and we are longing to be with him forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we get into your word this morning, you know the state of our hearts, the, even the state of our Christmas spirit. And Lord, I pray that even as we talk about waiting this morning, that you would minister to our hearts. Cast our eyes upon heaven. Cast our eyes upon yourself and your eternal love for your people. Renew our joy. Maybe that joy won't be expressed as happiness necessarily, Lord, but renew it as a, a settled trust in our eternal king. And would you do that through your word this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, a quick review of Ruth. Um, chapter 1, Sermon 1, two weeks ago, I called Emptied in Kindness. Emptied in Kindness because there was this husband of Naomi, Elimelech, who leads his family, which would be his wife and his two sons, away from Bethlehem, their homeland, away from the house of bread because the house of bread had no bread in the cupboards. There was a famine. So Elimelech did what was right in his own eyes and took his family away to the land of Moab, not of the chosen people, not the promised land, in fact, enemies of Israel. And as they're gone, Elimelech dies. And even Naomi's two sons die, though before they died, they had taken on wives. Hearing that there is bread in the house of bread again, that God had visited his people, Naomi decides to go home. Decides to go home, and she takes her daughters with her, but then urges them to return because, listen, girls, I don't have any husbands for you. Go and find rest in the house of your mothers and in the house of your gods. One daughter, Orpah, does just that. The other daughter, Ruth, instead makes a covenant with Naomi and with God. I will not leave you. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. When Naomi returns and arrives in Bethlehem, she describes herself as empty and bitter. But there is a barley harvest. Hope is on the horizon. 
Sermon 2 last week was called At Rest in Kindness. So emptied in kindness and then at rest in kindness as Ruth trusts that God will provide through his covenant kind people and says, I'm going to go out and glean in the fields. I'm going to go pick up some grain, some barley that they're supposed to leave for people like us. And she, she goes out and she just happens to glean in the field of a worthy man, Elimelech's relative, Boaz. And Boaz blesses Ruth for her covenant kindness to Naomi, noting that Ruth has come back to Bethlehem and found protection and provision, refuge and rest under the wings of the Lord. Boaz kindly blesses Ruth with much food to take home to Naomi and also welcomes her to eat along with him and the other harvesters. Naomi, upon hearing that Boaz is the source of their food, tells Ruth that Boaz is a close relative who is a redeemer. Yes, there is more hope on the horizon. So chapter 2 concludes, and Ruth continued to glean until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. To which we come to chapter 3 this morning, and I've titled this morning's sermon, Waiting in Kindness. Because, listen, it's been about two months since that glorious first day for Ruth in the fields. Both harvests have come in. And what has the interaction been like between Ruth and Boaz? Has there been any interaction between Ruth and Boaz? What is Naomi doing during this time? We don't know exactly. It's silent in the narrative. But we do know from that last verse of chapter 2 that Ruth continued to glean and she continued to live with Naomi. These are the things that she had committed to, to caring for her mother-in-law and living with her. So she waited in kindness, the kindness of harvest and home. Perhaps not Naomi, though. Perhaps she did not wait in that same way. She keeps waiting, but she's probably not out on the fields. So as she waits, she's likely wondering, what is keeping Boaz from making the next move? He's a redeemer. He's already blessed Ruth. What is keeping him from stepping up and redeeming us, taking on his responsibility for us as part of his family? Is Ruth not catching his eye? Is she not attractive enough for him? Are we going to just perpetually glean while our field, the field of my husband, just remains barren and cracked and unfruitful? Is this all there is for us? So as we enter into Ruth 3 this morning, I want you to feel that waiting. We'll be transported into what I'm calling three waiting rooms. Three waiting rooms, in each of which we are, we are meant to feel this weight of waiting. The first waiting room we'll find is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. So take a look at these. The story continues. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... 
Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? Can you hear how the mother-in-law machinations are happening in these two months? She's thinking through, dude is our redeemer. And nothing has happened except I'm, we're, we're eating. What's going on here? My daughter, shouldn't I seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he, Boaz, is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So winnowing would be this. The harvest has come in, but then they would have a place outside of Bethlehem where the western winds would prevail. And they would throw the barley or whatever grain up in the air, and the wind would blow away the chaff, and the grain would fall and remain. He's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Some plan. Some plan. For restless Naomi, rest or fullness, as we found out throughout this story, meant marriage. It meant kids. When she told her two daughters in chapter 1, go back and find rest, her intent was that they go back and find husbands. When she comes to Bethlehem and says, the Lord has made me empty, what has he made her empty of? A husband and two sons. So when she's saying, here, my daughter, should I not seek rest? She is intentionally saying, we need to find you a husband no matter what. No matter what. In her waiting restlessness, she gets risky, and she takes matters into her own hands. She does, in a sense, what is right in her own eyes here. In pursuit of rest, she actually risks Ruth's reputation. This is a bold move in the middle of the night to one of the main men in the town, a man of importance and reputation. And Ruth, as Boaz has just talked about in chapter 2, also has a reputation of faithfulness and covenant kindness. So in pursuit of this rest, she risks Ruth's reputation and also Boaz's. Wash, anoint yourself, put on some perfumed oil, and put on your cloak. Interesting that when she says put on your, when she gives her these instructions, they're instructions that we hear back in Genesis 38. There's another interesting story there about Judah and Tamar. Judah was the father-in-law of Tamar, and I'll, I'll spare you the full extent of the story. But Tamar lost her husband, became a widow, and Judah did not enforce the reality that his other son needed to then carry on his brother's line, who was now dead. Tamar then takes matters into her own hands, and deceives her father-in-law and then is impregnated by her father-in-law. She does the same thing. 
She washes herself, puts on perfumed oil. And then what does it mean when she puts on her cloak, Tamar? It's that she took off her mourning cloak and put on her regular clothes. That seems to be the sense here of what is happening with Ruth. She's ending her mourning for her husband. And in a sense, Naomi is saying, that part of our life is done. Let's see what the Lord has for us next. So Ruth goes to the threshing floor, and she waits. She hides. Uncover his feet, and then hear what he has to say. And how does Ruth reply? Ruth, the worthy woman who is committed to her mother, does not push back, does not suggest how the plan could be tweaked, maybe made a little less risky. She replies simply, All that you say, I will do. See, Ruth, though Naomi is restless, Ruth is restful. She is committed to Naomi, trusts her judgment even, and obeys because she has made a covenant with the Lord. The covenant with the God of Israel even supersedes the covenant with her mother-in-law. She will trust the situations that God puts her in and rest in him. We see identity shifts happening here. Ruth is called daughter-in-law by the author, but Naomi calls her daughter back when Ruth says, I will go and glean, and then here again in verse 1, daughter. She is now in the covenant family. And we see this identity shift for Ruth as well as her mourning garments are removed and she is now eligible, open to marriage. Waiting room number one at home. Moves to waiting room number two in verse six. So she went to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your daughter, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So here we find faithful Ruth obeying Naomi, even at the risk of her own reputation, going in in the dead of night. Can you feel the darkness? Was there a moon? Were there stars? It's outside of a city that's unlike ours. There's no light pollution. It's dark. And she waits somewhere off in a corner, waiting to see how the night will develop, intent on obeying Naomi and intent on obeying her God. Some have suggested that the uncovering of her feet was a seductive play, 
by her. And perhaps Naomi meant it as that. But we don't see any hint of that in what Ruth actually does. One of those reasons is because, spoiler alert, in chapter 4, it says that Boaz went in to Ruth after being married and they conceived. So here it seems like this is pure. This is simply Ruth humbling herself before Boaz. To which Boaz was startled. It was dark, and somehow he knew, maybe it was the scent of her perfume that alerted him to the reality that there was a woman. She did not smell like the harvesters. There was a woman laying at his feet, humble and confident, and Hesed loyally love, love Ruth, says, I am your servant. But there's a confidence there. See, when she had called herself a servant to Boaz in chapter 2, she meant a slave servant. Here, it's a maidservant. A maidservant who, in Jewish law, could bear a son that would carry an inheritance forward. And this was an overt marriage proposal from Ruth to Boaz. Cover me as God has covered thee. Verse 9 has the word wings. It's, it's, it's the same word that also means the corners of a flowing garment. So Ruth's act of uncovering Boaz's feet wasn't some kind of seduction, but she was actually displaying a picture of what she was asking of him. The corner of his robes being synonymous to wings. And to spread one's wings over someone was a euphemism, another way of saying, marry me. Please cover me, Boaz. Protect me. Redeem me. Marry me. <clears throat> In the shadow of the Lord's wings is a place of darkness, but also of kindness. And it is also clearly here a place of redemption, a place of covenant marriage. So we're left wondering, in this waiting room of the threshing floor, with such a bold move by Ruth, would God keep her and redeem her through Boaz? Or would she be blown away as chaff? Would she be shown to be part of the seed of Israel? Or those who are not of faith, not of Abraham, and blown away? She showed faith in the worthiness of her Redeemer, Ruth did. Let me explain this idea of Redeemer a little bit. Uh, the scriptures note five aspects of the Hebrew word goel. That's the word for Redeemer. And these, these five redemptive roles, one of them is to ensure that the hereditary property of a clan never passes out of the clan. If you know in the New Testament, God was very precise in saying which tribes had which inheritances, and then those inheritances were then divvied up into clan and family. Well, a goel, a redeemer, would ensure that that property never passed out of the clan. He was keeping it for the good of the community, the clan. A goel also would maintain the freedom of individuals within the clan by buying those who had sold themselves into slavery through economic desperation. So he ensured property 
he ensured ultimate freedom. He also would track down and execute murderers of near relatives. We're not going to find that in this story. He would receive restitution on behalf of a deceased victim of a crime. And finally, he would ensure justice is served in a lawsuit regarding a relative. So a Goel was a guardian. A Goel would see what was going on within the family and justly do, even at cost to himself, what needed to be done. It's based upon an assumption of corporate solidarity and sanctity of the family, of the clan. To offend a relative was to offend one's self. So the custom of redemption was designed to maintain the wholeness and health of family relationships even after the person has died. Which, right, that would be the case of Elimelech, Ruth's father-in-law, and also of her husband. So take these three away. Rescue from slavery, remember a father's family name, and reestablish an inheritance in the promised land. But Ruth was on the short end of the stick on all of those. Except for Boaz. Which perhaps gives us some more justification for why Ruth, I'm sorry, Naomi, was so forward He is the key to our prosperity. He is the key to our rest. We may have this barren field, but it will stay that way unless we have our Redeemer work on our behalf. Perhaps it was also how Ruth was understanding the covenant and saying, yeah, this might be a risky plan, but this is what I should be doing, availing myself of the covenant rest that I found under God's wings and then proposing marriage to the man that it seems like God has given to redeem me and Naomi. How does worthy Boaz respond? He says, my daughter. He blesses Ruth. I know you are a worthy woman as all of my fellow townsmen know as well. I will do for you all that you ask. But note what he says in verse 10. You have made this last kindness greater, this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. What a candid thing to say. By a man who has all of the power, all of the influence, all of the privilege in this situation. A man who, in the time of the judges, could have taken advantage of this perfumed woman offering herself at his feet. Yet he was a worthy man, and he didn't. And then he becomes very candid in response to her proposal for marriage. This kindness, last kindness, greater than the first. The first kindness had been that Ruth had given herself, dedicated herself to Naomi. And this second one, to choose an older man for the sake of bearing a son for Naomi or for Elimelech. 
This is remarkable in Boaz's eyes. We don't know how old Boaz was, but he obviously saw himself as older than the other guys in the fields. Older than the other guys that could have perhaps married Ruth. But she had eyes only for him and for his God. So she sacrificed a youthful man for a worthy man. And Boaz, think on him. Why is he old and still a bachelor? We don't know. Except that God in his providence had kept Boaz to the side for Ruth. And she sacrifices a youthful man for a worthy man. So Boaz, in his identity, goes from being left behind to chosen by Ruth. And Boaz says, I am a redeemer. Verse 12. I am a redeemer. I am the guardian of this family. And he promises to redeem Ruth. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, here's an obstacle to the redemption. If this other guy who actually is first in line to redeem you, to claim your inheritance, if he will do so, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down, dear Ruth, until the morning. One more thing about Boaz here. He wasn't just a worthy bachelor waiting to be chosen. He was a bachelor who, if he died without a son, his bountiful fields that they've been gleaning from would go unclaimed like Elimelech's. He was yet without a son as well. Not only was the covenant kindness of Ruth redeeming Elimelech's field, if there is a son to come, he will also redeem Boaz's field. This is a thing of hope for him, beyond just marriage, but, beyond, but the establishment of his line in Israel. We come to the third waiting room then. Waiting at home. Verse 14. So Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning but arose before one could recognize another. The light had come up just enough. The sun was shining just enough for her to be able to get away, probably with the cloak over her head. But just before that, Boaz says to her, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. The rest who are here, this doesn't leave here. Her reputation is critical and worthy. Boaz says, bring the garment you are wearing, Ruth, and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. How much barley is this? We don't know exactly. One commentator I read said, maybe about 60 pounds of barley. That's a lot of barley. 60 pounds of barley, and what does it say? He put it on her. He must have taken her outer cloak, wrapped it up, and put it on her. 
She carried this bounty home. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Apparently her reputation is preserved. She gets home. Naomi says, how did you fare, my daughter? One commentator I read said that the, the semantic force of this is actually more like, are you his wife yet? Are you his wife yet? She was not yet. But I think we can see the way that God in his grace to Naomi is step by step, waiting room by waiting room, opening her heart to trust him again. Naomi, take care of the food. Naomi, I'll take care of your redemption. Naomi, I'll give you a daughter who goes and does a marriage proposal beyond what you could have prescribed. I will provide a redeemer for you who will care for you. I think that we can see that happening in Naomi, waiting room to waiting room to waiting room, because her response when she sees this bounty of goodness, this great blessing is to interpret it as a down payment on what Boaz will do. My daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, wait, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now Naomi is finally at rest in her Redeemer's world. And part of it is because she says, my Redeemer, he is the restless one. He is the one who keeps his word. He is the one that will redeem us. Trust in him. He is a worthy man. A one that you can trust and understand that everything that he promises, he will fulfill. This is Naomi's statement of faith in the Redeemer. She goes from restless to restful waiting. She will no longer take matters into her own hands because God is filling them. God is filling her hands. And understand this for Ruth, she would never need to glean again. This last 60-pound deposit of barley was her last time in the fields, at least as a gleaner. Her Redeemer was providing and had provided. Wait until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The person of faith, the person who has had a heart changed by Yahweh, by the Lord, will say, Yes. I can wait. Though the days are gray, I can wait. I will wait. His promises are true. I will hope in his word. 
The matter will turn out ultimately as he has promised. Do I know how long that's going to be? No. Do I know all the circumstances that will be between now and then? No. But I know him. And I trust him. So as we wait this Advent, which waiting room are you in? Are you still at home? Restless? Something you might want to ask yourself. What are you waiting for? Is there something that comes to mind immediately would say, that would give me rest. Like I said earlier, for Naomi, it was marriage and kids, family, which in turn would give her stability, economic stability, food stability. What would give you rest? Maybe you are looking at marriage or family as true rest. Sometimes Ruth gets taught as a primer for finding a husband. Okay. If that husband is the Lord. Don't let it be a primer to, and I'm talking to either to single guys or single women. Don't let it be a primer to say, I need to go out and find my Boaz or my Ruth. Let it be instructive to find your rest in the one who gathers his children under his wings. And if he has also gathered someone else who would be your husband or your wife, praise him. But don't go looking outside of his wings to go find someone else's. But you and I know there are other things besides marriage and family that cause us to be restless people. Trust in the Lord, your Redeemer. Maybe you're at the threshing floor. You've been, you've seen a degree of God's refuge and how he's brought you back. Maybe you're returning to church life or returning to some sort of curiosity about God. And this whole reality about God being gracious, 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 and beyond gracious, loyal, loyal, and loyal, beyond loyal, full of love, hesed commitment to people that we don't deserve. Maybe these are ideas that are almost too wondrous for you to conceive. Well, they are. They are. So you wonder, is, is he someone that I can actually trust? And I would say, yes, he definitely is. But you can almost see the path towards salvation in these three chapters. We as people, we wander in our own sin and we're lost there. But God in his mercy will call back people to return to where he is. And they may return to where he is, a place like church, a place like hearing the gospel. And you may say, I'm feeling refuge I'm feeling a place where I belong. That's good. Praise God. I hope that you find that here among this people and in this place. But can I say this? You still haven't known your Redeemer. 
until you lay down at his feet and offer yourself to be redeemed. Hear what Paul writes to the Galatians. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Ruth laying herself down at the feet of her Redeemer was an act of faith. Take me. Cover me. Covenant yourself to me. Paul is saying the righteous, those who are righteous in God's eyes, will live by that same faith. But how is that faith defined? The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. We can't outlaw or outrighteous God. We can't just say, I'm among a people where I feel God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. Boaz, in his redeeming role, did all that he needed to do. He was a worthy man, but he was not Christ. Boaz gave of himself through covenant marriage, Christ says, I will give you myself in totality. And I will take everything of your foreign sinfulness on myself. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is a love story that has curse at its core. And Christ said, I will come to those who I love and I will take the curse that is on them and bring it to myself. I will be hung on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, we are all Gentile wanderers in our sin. But Jesus is saying, I went to the cross and became a curse so that you could be reunited with God again. You could know yourself as a covenant family member again. But note that it's not just a that's nice to be part of that. It is faith in a specific redeemer, Jesus Christ. It is faith in a specific redeemer who has done a specific thing, gone to the cross to become our curse. Unless you by faith say, I need someone to take the curse for me, and Jesus did that, you don't actually have faith in Christ, which is the key. He is the key. So come, trust him, place your faith in him, say, there is no hope for me. I have no inheritance. I have no family. I'm still a slave to my own sin. But I know that you as the Redeemer came to die so you can redeem me in all of those ways. There's no longer sh the short end of the stick for me or a stick held by God over me because Jesus came and spread his wings to rescue me and to redeem me. 
Trust him. He is alive. He rose from the dead so that he, as being alive, can be trusted. He is our redeemer. If you are not a Christian today, would you return from your sin? Would you find refuge among the people of God where God has visited is his church? We are the Bethlehem. He has visited his church with his good news and says, come here and find the rest of redemption where you can know forgiveness. You can know that you are no longer a slave to sin. You can know that you have a true family that has a true father and your inheritance with him is sure. So when the winds of judgment blow, you will not be blown away with the chaff, but you will be counted as the seed of Israel and will remain. But I know for many of you, you're saying, but how does the gospel speak to my gray days of waiting? I, I know Christ. He's changed me. I love him. But these days are gray. Perhaps you're still in the third waiting room. Waiting, perhaps a bit restless, but desiring to be restful as you wait for your restless Redeemer who will do what he said he will do. Can I just encourage you in this? Don't expect too much of yourself. Don't expect too much of the season. Do not expect too much of your feelings in these weeks. But expect much of Christ. He is your Redeemer. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, he also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, Christmas, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. No longer under the slavery, the guardianship of the law, we might receive adoption as sons, true family. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, a bounty beyond 60 pounds of barley, the first fruits, the promise of his son, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. As you are waiting, cry, Abba, Father. God, you are with me. I am yours. I will wait under your wings. I will wait with your people. I know who you are. I know what you have done, and I know what you have promised. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There is an inheritance 
in the promised land with the promised people in a promised family for all of those who belong to Christ. May we continue to cry out achingly, even in the gray days of waiting, how long, O Lord, when will you return, Jesus? And he says, behold, I am coming soon. Let's pray. O Lord, we ask for the grace to wait. And Lord, I ask that if there are any here who are at the threshing floor and they don't yet know whether or not they are yours, that this morning they would humbly say, please take me, Jesus. Take me as your bride. Gather me, protect me, redeem me. I need to be forgiven. And Lord, for those who are already in your family, Give us the grace to wait. Give us the grace to love you, to see the eternal reality that you have set in our hearts so even when we ache, we would be aching for eternity with you. Oh God, help us rest in you and you alone. In your name we pray, Jesus.